All right, I got to do it. Howdy! Awesome. I'm class of 97, so it's, I'm, you know, it's almost 15 years since I've been back here, and I, you know, I'm just like, man, I've been waiting to get back to College Station, want to get in front of the college students and throw that out and just have the, the chance to experience that. So it's great. Thanks, thanks for entertaining it. Appreciate it. I do want to emphasize something that Vanessa said earlier. We have a men's Bible study which I noticed there's actually a few in here that I've signed up for on Thursday morning at 6 a.m. because that's what time college students love to get up and get rolling out of bed. So if y'all want to join that, be part of that too, we'd love to have you. Anyway, I'm excited to be back here, uh, here with the college group. I, uh, you know, walk in and Trey, he's like, we come in and speak to the college group? And I said, sure, not a problem, Trey. What are you covering? He's like, well, we've been going through the book of Hebrews Last semester, and we're going to finish it up this semester. And I was like, the book of Hebrews. I mean, the book of Hebrews is a difficult book. It's hard to work through. And I mean, a lot of churches just skip it, <laughs> much less try to teach it in the college class. So I was like, that's exciting, Trey. Um, so if you haven't opened up there, go ahead and open up to Hebrews uh, chapter 1. Because one thing I talked to Trey about, one thing when I was going through Hebrews a number of years ago, um, I had a professor of mine at Dallas Seminary that came in and he and I was just trudging through it, and I was getting caught up in some things. And he did this great job of just kind of walking me through kind of the big picture and what's going on. And it was a huge help to me. So I said, Trey, would you like me to kind of step in and do the same thing? Kind of show them where they were, where they've come from, where they are, and give them a glimpse of where you're going or, or where the book's going and where God's taking them and what he's doing. And he's like, you know, that'd be a great idea. So... We're going to kind of do that, do a little bit of an overview, but before we get started, Trey did ask me to introduce myself a little bit. My name is Jason Wheezy Poppy, and that really is my last name. I can't make that up. So I'm the associate pastor here at the Southwood campus, and I've been here since May, so long, long time, and I have a wife, and in this May, uh, Jamie and I will have been married 13 years. And we have a six-year-old little boy, and a four-year-old little girl, and an 18-month-old little girl. And, you know, they just, golly, just love them. So my son, I walk along, and I'm like, wow, Samuel, come on, step it up. But my little girls, it's like, oh, man, Jamie, discipline them now. So <laughs> it's, it's kind of rough. Uh, I grew up out in the Hill Country area. I grew up in Bernie, Texas, and graduated from there, came to A&M, 93 97, I crammed four years into five and finally graduated and left here in 98 and went to work for this little energy company in Houston called Enron. Some of y'all may not, yeah, so y'all, y'all, everybody knows who Enron is. It's probably a case study now in all your business classes. So some of us live the reality, yeah. So I'm the old man, I know, Trey comes up here, he's got the great hair, I'm old enough that, you know, I don't, I don't have the great hair anymore, but... Uh, so I, was, I left there in 2001. I've been in Dallas for about the last 10 years at Grace Bible Church and working there and at Dallas Seminary. And so it's been exciting. To, I saw in May, I saw Brian Fisher at his graduation, getting his doctorate of ministry. And uh, he said, hey, Jason, what are you and Jamie doing? I said, well, you know, just doing this. He's like, hey, would you think about a change? I said, sure. And then little did I know that on August 5th, we showed up here two and a half months later. So it's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, back then, Brian was the assistant pastor. He hadn't even done college ministry yet. And we would hang out. And his wife, Tristy, was Tristy Welpley. They weren't even married. And he, she discipled my wife all through college. So it was ex- so it's exciting. When I was growing up, I grew up in a small church. Church is built in 1875. 
It had all wood interior. We sat in wooden pews. The pastor, he preached out of a pulpit that was six feet up in the air. And, you know, so we sat like this on Sunday. And, I mean, little, like on, Sun, on Easter Sunday, when everybody, you know, shows up and goes to church, we had about 50 of us. I mean, that was like the big, the big showing. And so he would preach down like this from that, pul- from that pulpit, and we would sit back like this. And, and that was my kind of view of church. And that's all I had seen. That's all I had been around. And my Sunday school teacher, he showed up and taught whether all three of us were there or not. And, and he would go. And sometimes I was the only one. And you know, he was going. It was great. But, uh, and then I loved it. It was a wonderful place. A friend of ours that lived across the street was this guy named Charlie Armbuckle. And Charlie and I were good friends. And Charlie and his family went to church, and they were Christians, and we, I'd go over, both my parents work, and I'd go over and stay at his house after school during the week. And Charlie, one day, both my parents had to stay late. So it was a Wednesday, they called Charlie's house and say, hey, can Jason stay a little bit later with you guys? And they said, sure, we're going to church tonight. My parents were like, well, we go to church on Wednesday nights, that's great, let Jason go to church with you. So I go to this church, and I show up, and you know, it's a little different. I mean, our church is built in 1875, so it's, you know, I'm like, okay, they don't have all the wood stuff and everything. That's okay. And then, you know, like the music gets going. And in our church, we had an organ, and we sang one hymn whether we needed it or not. This place was not that way, and the music was pretty lively. And, and so I'm kind of like, this just, just feels a little weird, not, not quite the same, but it's okay. And all of a sudden, people started getting up, and it kind of started dancing around, and they were like would run up and down the aisles, and and uh, boy, I was really struggling at this point. I'm you know trying to take it in, but I'm like, it's okay, it's okay, I'm gonna be all right. And then and then the pastor gets up and he starts talking and going with all the music, and and I'm just trying to take it all in, and I've got people falling down on the floor and like convulsing, and and I'm like, this is just not my paradigm. I'm not, it's not like, you know, where's, where's the little hymnal book that tells me where to stand up and sit down? I, you know, I didn't know quite what to do with it. And finally, when it came back into my mind, what he was doing and what he was saying is, he's standing over the front, he's like, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And he, he just kept saying that, and he's like, all right, now I just want to know, who, who wants to know the truth? Who, who wants to know the truth? And I was just like, oh my gosh, what is going on here? And so he starts coming down the aisle and, and people are stepping out and people would get up and he'd go, wham! And he'd hit them in the forehead and they would fall back and these people would catch him and carry people outside. And I was like, oh! And he keeps, he keeps coming down and he's coming down the aisle. But I'm about three quarters of the way back and I'm sitting on the edge of the aisle. And so he keeps coming, and he's walking further, and he's coming down, and he's coming closer and closer, and he's whapping people on the head and falling, they're taking him out. And all of a sudden, he gets right, like I'm right here, and he's about right here. And I'm like, ah, uh, and my friend Charlie goes, bam. And so all of a sudden, I'm from the corner of the aisle to right in the middle. And he's like, do you want to know the truth? And I was like, Oh, and he's like, wham, and he hits me on the head, and I fall back, and these guys pick me up, and they take me outside, and they, they leave me, and <laughs> so I'm sitting there, and Charlie, he comes outside, and he's like, 
hey man, so, so do you know the truth? <laughs> I was like, I don't know about the truth, but I'm glad, glad to be free from in there. But I was sitting out there and I was struggling and I was confused and I was like, boy, you know, I, I don't know what's going on. And, you know, from the early part in my Christian life, when I first became a Christian for years, you know, I struggled and I would try to, to do things to, you know, like just pull up my Bible and I'll just read here or, I'll, you know, just pray randomly. I didn't really know where to go or what to do. It actually wasn't until I got here to A&M that a guy took me aside and started to disciple me. But for years, that's kind of how I lived the Christian life. And I was struggling and I was confused. And then I would find myself just, you know, throwing my hands up and be like, I don't know what to do. So I would go back to the old way of doing things to the way that I would do life, you know, before I knew the Lord and, and just, just do it that way because it was familiar. I, I knew what was going on. I, I had a paradigm for that. Well, when you come to the book of Hebrews and you show up there, the Hebrews or the audience of the book of Hebrews, they're struggling with the same thing. You know, you have all this new stuff that's come, all this new stuff that's happened, and, and, and they're trying to get a grasp of it. They're trying to get a hold of it, and they're trying to follow it, but they don't completely understand. And then they're facing persecution from their family and from their friends. And a lot of them are just saying, you know, I'm done with this. And they're, even, they're either becoming lackadaisical in their, their Christian life and what they're doing, and they just want to sit back and not, not deal with it. Or they're going back to Judaism and following things under the old covenant, under the old priesthood, because that's what they've been doing for centuries. <laughs> I mean, that's what they know. But the author of Hebrews is stepping in and he's saying, no, <laughs> no, don't, don't go back. Don't, don't go back to that. I, I, I know it's familiar and I know that it sounds good and, and, and it's easy because that's the life you've known. But the first things that came are not the best things. What's first isn't always best. Just stay with me. Just listen just a little bit. I'm saying that to you, but they're saying, I'm really meaning the author of the Hebrews, but stay with me. Follow this. First isn't always best. I mean, you and I know that, right? I mean, first might be great in the Olympics and everything, but in most other areas of life, first isn't always the best thing. Think about when you go out to eat. The first bite is the most filling. You're dating somebody. The first date is the most intimate. It's where you connect the most. Your first semester's grades are your best grades. (laughs) Your first impression is always the right impression. See, you and I know, I mean, we know from experience that first isn't always best. And that's where the author of Hebrews is stepping in. He's saying, look, and he's sculpting his whole argument around this, saying what came first isn't always best. And he starts off this argument right off from the bat in verses 1 and 2 in Hebrews chapter 1. And I'm going to move out of the book of James so that it makes more sense what I'm saying. It says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, and these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, 
through whom also he made the world. So very clearly, the author is stepping out and he's saying, look, there was a first revelation that came. And the revelation, I know this is a bit of a review, the first revelation came by the prophets through the angels. And that's how he received it. But that first revelation, that revelation was incomplete. It wasn't completely what we were looking for. So one had to be followed. And the second revelation came to us not by the prophets, not through the angels, but it came through the very Son of God Himself. He who is most radiant, the one who is most perfect. He's the one that's complete and He's supreme and He's over everything. So you had this first revelation that, that, that had to be brought through the angels, through the prophets. But you've got a second one, the one that's even better. It's more complete. It's more perfect. It's the very Son of God Himself. So the first revelation has to be followed by a second But this isn't the only thing that the author argues on. He goes on, follow me in verse 7. Because in the same way that there had to be a first revelation, there also was a first priesthood. That priesthood came through Aaron along the Levitical line. But that first priesthood was followed by a second priesthood. One that came from Melchizedek. It was uh, one in which Jesus Christ came. When when you look at verse 11, it, it, it talks about that the first one that came, it was unable to bring perfection. That even though that they tried, it says, Now if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it people received the law, what further need was there for another priesthood to rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not being designated according to the order of Aaron? So it was imperfect. Later on in verse 18, it talks about that the, the first one that came was, was useless. <laughs> It, it had a weakness. But the second one that came, came according to Aaron. It was a second priesthood. It was the Son of God who brought us the second revelation. And He sits supreme. And notice the, one, the main thing that the first priesthood couldn't do. If you look in verse 19, that the second priesthood does. It brings us hope. The first priesthood that came through Aaron was never able to bring hope. You know, it was fallen men that came. It was, it was priest after priest, but the second priesthood, the one that comes through Melchizedek, through Jesus Christ, is perfect and brings about ultimate hope. But the author doesn't stop there. He goes on into verse 8. Because in addition to the first revelation, there had to be a second revelation. And like there was for the first priesthood, there had to be a second priesthood. And not only was there a first tabernacle, there had to be a second tabernacle because the first tabernacle was associated with Moses. And it only had to do with here what was on the earth. But this second tabernacle, he shows us that it's, it's one that's better. It comes. It's a tabernacle that's in the heavenlies. It's not one that's associated here on the earth. The one that was here on the earth, the very first one, was only a picture But verse 5 tells us that it was only a copy of the things that were in the heavenly. It was only a shadow of what was going to be there. But the second one, when it comes, this one is in heaven. And this one is eternal. And it's in this one, at this very moment, that the Son of God sits at the right hand of the Father, having already come and fulfilled and made atonement for all men. But the first one isn't always perfect. It isn't always complete. So he goes on. If you read with me in verse 6 of chapter 8, it says this, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, 
By as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. You see, in the same way that there had to be a first revelation, and there had to be a second. In the same way that there had to be a first priesthood, and there had to be a second. In the same way that there had to be a first tabernacle and a second, there is a first covenant that has to be followed by a second. The first covenant that came was one where the law was not written on our hearts. The law was just simply written on stone tablets, but when the second covenant came, it was no longer one that was just simply written on tablets given to Moses, but the law was actually came and it was written on our heart. And so he comes in and he tells us the great promises of the new covenant. And he says, look at this in verse eight, verses 8 through 13. He says, For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After the days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach every one his fellow citizens, and every one his brothers, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them, for I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And when he said a new covenant, he has made the first one obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. So in the same way, there was a first revelation followed by a second. And a first priesthood that was followed by a second. There was a first covenant that was followed by a second, which internalized the law and basically guaranteed that the relationships that humanity seeks with God will one day come to ultimate fulfillment one that wasn't available, that didn't come through the first covenant. It wasn't able to happen, but only through the second covenant that came through Jesus Christ. Notice how the writer goes on. Look at verse 23 in chapter 9. It says, Therefore it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So, again, in the same way there had to be a first covenant, there had to be a second. And for this, not only was there a first sacrifice, but there was a second. A sacrifice that was appropriate for its time and for its place, one that was associated with the blood of, of goats and and calves. But these sacrifices were not appropriate for the second covenant, for the new priesthood, for the new covenant, for the new tabernacle. Go on in verse 24. It says, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in God's presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own, Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. 
But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away the sins by the sacrifice of himself. You see, there is a second sacrifice. It's not a sacrifice of calves and of goats, but it's a sacrifice of the Son of God himself. It's not a sacrifice that had to be made often, that had to be made day after day or year after year, but it was one sacrifice for all times. You didn't have to worry about the, the priest going into the to make a cleanse of sin offering for himself year after year. Because the Son of God is perfect and He's holy, He's able to be the one sacrifice for us for all time. There was no temporality to Him. He was able to be the complete and sufficient sacrifice for all sin. So first is not always best. First is not always complete. And the first is not always the most perfect. But the author of Hebrews doesn't end there. Look in verse 27 of chapter 9. He says, And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, after this comes judgment. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Did you hear what the author said? In the same way that there had to be a first revelation followed by a second revelation. In the same way there had to be a first priesthood that was followed by a second priesthood. In the same way there had to be a first tabernacle that was followed by a second tabernacle. In the same way that there was a first covenant that was followed by a second covenant. In the same way that there was a first sacrifice that was followed by a second sacrifice. There was a first coming of Jesus Christ that has to be followed by a second coming. One where he will come, not like human beings, to be judged, as the verse says. You know, all men die, and when men die, they go to judgment. And Christ died, but he doesn't die to be judged. He dies to come back as judge. And when he comes back, he will judge creation, and he will bring perfection to all things. He will bring completion that wasn't completely done or dealt with or was brought complete by his first coming. Look at this. Trace with me. Go back to chapter 2 for just a second. In verse 8. Here the author is quoting from Psalm 8. He's speaking of the Son of God. And he says this, You have put all things in subjection under his feet. It's a quote from Psalm 8. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now, now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Sometimes for most people, when they say the scriptures, this can be the most bitter, bitterest phrase. Because in right now, it says we do not see all things subjected to him. Because in the same way the first covenant was incomplete, the first coming is incomplete. In the second way, the second revelation had to be complemented by a second. Christ's first coming has to be complemented by his second. We don't only see this here in chapter 2, but we also see it in chapter 10, verse 11. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering 
time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. You see, the Son of God that is risen and sits at the right hand of the Father is waiting. He is waiting. He is waiting until the time is right, until he comes back. It's not that he doesn't have the power right to to come back and set everything straight and set everything in order. It's just not the right time. I've got three kids. Like I said earlier, six, four, and 18 months. And all of my kids, by the grace of God, now wake up all about the same time at 7 o'clock in the morning, for which I am so grateful. But every now and then, something offsets their internal, internal, (laughs) internal clock. And they wake up like at 3.30 in the morning. And when they're, when they're babies and they're in their, and they're in their crib and they can't get out, like Ella Grace, she's 18 months and she's still in her crib, I can hear her and she stands there and it's like 3.30 in the morning and she's like, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. And I have to explain to her, I have to say, Ella Grace, it is not that Daddy does not have the power to get out of bed but it is not time. <laughs> and then in all husbandly love, I roll over and I shake Jamie. And I go, Jamie, your daughter is awake and she needs you. No, I don't do that. <laughs> it's my little girl, so of course. I run upstairs. And she's like, Daddy, jumping in her bed. <laughs> I have thought about it sometimes. My kids have learned early on that daddy is the morning person in the house. And mommy, don't touch her. <laughs> and it has its benefits. They get up in the morning and they come running downstairs and they come hopping on my side of the bed and they turn their back and they snuggle back into me and it's like, oh, this is the greatest time of the day. It's awesome and I love it. I've also noticed that if I let them go long enough, they will eventually go, Mommy. So I try not to let it get there because I like for all things to be peaceful and happy in the house too. So, okay, I've completely digressed talking about my kids, but they're awesome and I love them. And I always give things that they look like their mother too, and, uh, which is helpful. But <laughs> Okay. It's not that Christ does not have the power to come back at any moment to set things right in this world. And what's going on and what's been marred by sin and destruction. But he is waiting for the appropriate time. And I don't know what time that is. The Father knows. But I don't. And so the Son of God, the priest after the order of Melchizedek, the one who is supreme over the angels and the prophets and over Aaron, he is the author and the fulfiller of the new covenant, sits this morning, right now, the right hand of the Father, waiting for all things.
to be subjected to him. And this is the last time I'll make you play Bible drills, but go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14. So what's his encouragement to the readers of the Hebrews, to the audience that this was written to? He says, For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. For here we do not have a lasting and enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Where we are here, where we are right now, this isn't, this isn't home. <laughs> this isn't complete. This isn't perfect. What is first <laughs> is not always best. And it's through this lens, through this picture, that we have to understand the world. It's what gives us the lens to, to, to try to understand tragedies and destruction that have come throughout human history. For a while, I worked as the research assistant for the president in Dallas, Dallas Seminary. And so for several years, my job was, or a big part of it, was that any phone calls, emails, or letters that came to Dallas Seminary that they wanted the seminary's biblical theological position on, I had to answer it. And then either put Mark Bailey or Chuck Swindoll's name to it. So it was really good for me, because then I could say anything, and I never got any flack. But one day I got a call, and I got a call from uh, a certain state senator's office, not state of Texas, another state, after Hurricane Katrina had happened. And he was getting ready to go on the Hannity and Combs show and talk about how Hurricane Katrina, when it happened in New Orleans, was God's judgment on New Orleans for the sin of the city. And he wanted me to give him some verses to help support that. And I said, well, I'm, I'd love, love to help you, but I don't have any. What I can tell you, though, is this. We have these first two chapters of the Bible that talk about creation. And then we have this one that follows that then talks about the fall. And ever since that fall has happened, and ever since that time took place, man has been in opposition to God. And man has been in opposition to man. And creation has been in opposition to man. And creation has been in opposition to God, and you have these things that are affected and continue to be affected by sin. So whether that was God's judgment in New Orleans or not, I don't know. <laughs> but I do know that we live in an imperfect world, and imperfect things happen. This uh, couple guys prayed with me beforehand, which I was so appreciative of. This week has been a really tough week for us, and uh, hopefully you'll, you'll let me come back. But it's, it's been a little hard to concentrate. We, uh, you know, we moved from Dallas, and we had some friends that we were real close to. And their kids played with our kids about the same age. And uh, it was just a, um, a wonderful relationship. We got a call about a day and a half ago from, from the father. And uh, the mother uh, had committed suicide. And so it's been a rough you know, day and a half for us as we've tried to sit back and process and help them deal with things and call other people and help them deal with things. And uh, 
working through this and helping, you know, working through Hebrews coming up this time was very helpful for me. Because it reminded me that we, we don't live in a perfect world. We live in a world where sin still has effect on things. And that things are difficult and life is hard. And there are struggles. And I give thanks to God that there is a God who intimately and deeply cares about us. And that He loves us. And that one day, Christ will come and He will set all things right. Go to Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 with me. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is now among them, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, because the first Things have passed away. First is not always best. First is not always most complete. And the first is not always most perfect. And this is the light in which we have to understand the world. So how do we live in this time, in this place, where we are waiting where Christ has come and He's given us a hope and we, and, we, and we stand in hope and in faith and in patience and ready and waiting for His time to come. Well, that's the fun stuff Trey gets to cover with you coming up this spring. What does the Christian life look like as we live in a world of hope? As we hope and we look forward to Christ and His coming and His making all things right. This is what the author of Hebrews spends the rest of the book talking about and developing. Where is that hope? What does it look like? How is it lived out in this world? How are we a light to what's going on and what's happening as the first things pass away and the new and the perfect comes? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you this morning and we recognize that we live in a world that is broken. We, we live in a world that is perfect. We understand from 1 Corinthians that the goodness and the things that we see are only the very first fruits. It's a very small part of, of what's to come, the grandeur and the glory, a time where there will be no more death and there will be no more pain that you will wipe every tear from everyone's eyes and there will be no more crying. Lord, we live in a time of hope and anticipation. We cry out like John and we say, Come, Lord Jesus. Come dwell among us. Lord, help us not to lose that hope. Help us not to lose that anticipation. 
Help us to be able to see and desire and to live like the saints of old lived before us. One, knowing their purpose, living a life in glory to you. And we pray that you give us the help, that you give us the encouragement, that you give us desire to do those things, to live that way, to live Christianly. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for your love for us for the death and the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, that brought us hope. That through the old things, there was no hope. That hope was dead. But through Christ, it's alive and it's real. And we await His coming. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks, guys.